Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. This is the section that the Lord in his providence has laid before us this morning as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And so if you don't have a Bible, please grab one in the seat pocket in front of you so that you can follow along in the text and understand what the word says and what it means by what it says as we study it together. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. It says this, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What a section. What a known, famous, powerful section of scripture. Jesus in the garden. And what we're seeing in this particular section of scripture is Christ's struggle against temptation through prayer. Jesus is about 16 hours away from the cross at this point. And this section depicts his struggle against temptation through prayer. This is Christ's struggle against temptation, and the passage is entirely about prayer. Notice that. So I've entitled the message, Christ's Struggle Against Temptation Through Prayer. That's the main point. And this is part two. Just a couple weeks ago, we dealt with part one here. And so where are we? Well, the time in the upper room is finished. The time that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room is completed. If you remember, he was eager to eat 
the Passover with the disciples. At that time, in eating the Passover, Jesus transitioned from the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper, highlighting the substitutionary atonement of his death, that he would die as a substitute for sinners to avoid God's judgment. God's judgment can be avoided through the death of an innocent substitute. That was established in the Exodus. And that's what they celebrated during Passover. God's judgment can be avoided with the death of an innocent substitute. And at that time, at the Lord's Supper, as Christ transitions from the Passover to the Lord's Supper, he is making plain that he is the innocent substitute who's dying for sinners to avoid God's judgment. He's the true Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover. He also establishes and makes clear the new covenant that he seals with his blood, Jeremiah 31, that you can have peace with God through his spirit regenerating you, keeping you, and he will transform you, be your God, and you will be his people. This is a new covenant that he's sealing with his blood. He's making that clear in the upper room. He also makes clear that there's going to be an assortment of responses to his death. There's Judas's response. There's the disciples' prideful response. There's Satan's response. There will be Peter's response, and there will be the world's response. And Jesus overcomes all of those responses. And then he prepares his disciples. It was a time of training in the upper room, preparing the disciples for what they would face, all the crisis and opposition that they would face. And through all of that time in the upper room, Jesus is displaying clearly his sovereign control over all of these aspects. None of the aspects of the cross are a surprise to him. None of them are overwhelming them. None of them are overcoming him. He is in control of all of them. They were part of the predetermined plan of God for the Christ to suffer and die for sinners. Now, as we come out of the upper room, which is the text that we're in currently, as we come out, Jesus would now face, as Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of his flesh he would face, unparalleled temptation and unimaginable sorrow. Hebrews tells us that this would be a time of loud crying and tears. Jesus is in the garden, and this section is full of loud crying and tears. That's the mood of the garden. Loud crying and tears. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus wouldn't succumb to the temptation, nor would the temptation come from within him. He didn't have a sinful nature that would be the source of any sinful action. It came from outside, and he wouldn't succumb to it. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so Satan was at work here in the garden. 
just like he was in Jesus's first major temptation, which is back in Matthew chapter four, this will be the second. Jesus will be tempted here to avoid the cross of, of Christ, to avoid his cross, to avoid the cross that the father has planned and laid, stop all of it, to avoid becoming sin on behalf of sinners. That was the temptation. Father, if you will, let this cup pass. What's the cup? That he would become sin, that he would drink God's judgment. The temptation would be for him to cling to the Father, to cling to the holiness of God, and to avoid the judgment of the cross. For us, the temptation is the opposite, right? In, in that sense, we're different. Our temptation is, is to leave the holiness of God and run to our sin. Jesus' temptation here was to cling to the Father and to avoid becoming sin. So Jesus, this was the plan. This was the predetermined plan and he was tempted to stop all of it because he would become something that he never knew before, which was sin. He who knew no what? Sin. He would be tempted to avoid experiencing something that he had never experienced before, which was separation from the Father. He would become sin and he would experience separation from the Father. And boy, was he tempted to avoid it. It wasn't the mere physical death. You have to understand this. It wasn't the physical death that caused the Son of God to be trembling in the garden. But the coming darkness. The breaking of fellowship, perfect fellowship with his father, the imputation of sin upon him, the punitive wrath against him when he never for one moment disobeyed his father, not once, and he would suffer the wrath of God. This is unimaginable. You can't know this like he did. His deep love and affection for his father, his unbroken fellowship for the father, his hatred of sin. You can't imagine the temptation to avoid this. He hated sin. He loved his father. He had never had broken fellowship with the father, not even once. And what was coming upon him was was his father's wrath. He loved the father so much, he was pleased to do the father's will. At all times, he was always obedient, never wanting for a moment to be in opposition towards his father. Not even for a moment. He was at peace and so pleased to be constantly submissive and obedient to the father. And now broken fellowship, the fullness of God's wrath, he would become sin on our behalf, and the temptation was to forsake the cross and cling to the Father to avoid this cup of judgment that would come upon him. 
Instead of drinking every last drop of it, he would be tempted to turn away from it. But he is going to obey his father all the way to separation from his father. He is going to obey the father all the way to separation with the father. Even to his own death, he is truly a sheep being led to the slaughter through the obedience to his father. The sorrow would be so overwhelming at this point. Mark 14 and Matthew 26, the parallel accounts, they give us the full picture. And Jesus says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Verse 53 in our text, you can look at it a little bit further on. Verse 53, it says, Jesus says, but this is your hour and the power of what? Darkness. So Jesus does two things during this time. He consumes himself with prayer, firstly, and secondly, he instructs his disciples to do the same. Think about this now. During this, he consumes himself with prayer in response, and he instructs his disciples to do the same. In the face of temptation and sorrow, he consumes himself with prayer, with prayer. And then he instructs his disciples to do the same. They will face their own temptation, though it will be different. They, are, they will face their own temptation to scatter, to leave Christ. In this wake of the sorrow of his death, they will be tempted to deny him. Satan will shake their faith. They will be tempted to leave. And so he calls them to follow his same instructions. And so this is a good leader. In the face of his own trials, his own sorrows, his own unimaginable temptation, he's instructing those disciples who are learning from him. And so Jesus, in this section, will turn to dependence on God in prayer. He'll set an example in prayer. He'll show how his attention is focused on prayer. He'll be submissive in prayer. He's going to be honest in prayer. He's going to withdraw to pray. He's going to command to pray. We're going to see his posture in prayer. We hear his words in prayer. We see him rise from prayer, and then we see him return from prayer. All of this is characterized by prayer. We've seen Jesus pray in John chapter 17 before he left the upper room, the high priestly prayer. We've heard Jesus instruct his disciples how to pray. As we hear the Lord's prayer. But now specifically, we see Jesus' example of prayer in the face of sorrow and temptation. This is Jesus' instructions to the disciples as we watch his example and as we hear his instructions on facing temptation and sorrow through prayer, specifically. And so the question is, is relevant. Do you turn to prayer? 
to avoid temptation, to deal with temptation, that you wouldn't fall into temptation? Are you prayerful at all? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you fell on your knees before God in prayer because you were so desperate to not fall into temptation? When's the last time that you fell on your knees casting your anxieties on him because you were so sorrowful at the thought of separation from God in any sense because of your sin? Have you been lazy in prayer? Have you been so proud that you don't pray? Would your life be characterized by prayer? We need to be a prayerful people. This church needs to be a place where people pray. In the morning, in the evening, throughout the day, for everything. We can learn from Christ's example here. We can follow his instructions, especially when dealing with temptation and sorrow. J.I. Packer says, it is God's way to regularly withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. And that includes triumph over temptation and sorrow. Our church must be characterized by prayer. We must be a people. If you're a Christian, you must be characterized by prayer. Dakota Taylor, one of our members, leads a prayer gathering here on Wednesday night. You have an opportunity to even pray with other members of this church on a regular basis. But you should also be, in your own individual lives, turning to God immediately in prayer as you face temptation and sorrow. So what do we see from Jesus's instructions? This is a very straightforward and simple text, but it is profound and it's help for us. Here's the four points. And we already covered the first. I'm just gonna recap it briefly and we'll cover the next three. But Jesus's example, as we watch him in this and we hear his instruction and we see his example, we see four elements really. Number one, desperation, verses 39 through 41. The first thing that we see is desperation in verses 39 through 41. Secondly, what we see is dependence in verses 42 through 43. Then we see distress in verses 44 through 45. And we see defeat in verse 46. Desperation, dependence, distress, and defeat. Okay? Well, let's take these one at a time. Let's start with the desperation in verses 39 through 41. Just briefly recapping. It says in verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And so we've said, listen, he's come out of the upper room. This is midnight or a little bit after. He's retreating to a place that they would go to every night during his week in, in Jerusalem. They would head to the Mount of Olives. Specifically, they would head to the southeast slope where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And 
Jesus and the disciples would retreat there every night during the during this week, during the Passover week, during the Passion week. But this time, rather than going all the way over to the southeast slope, they would stop at a garden called Gethsemane, which was on the side of the mountain closest to Jerusalem. Gethsemane means olive press. And so this was most likely owned by a follower of Christ who would allow Jesus and the disciples to stay there and to rest there often, probably as they went every day between, between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. And so every day they would stop here at this garden, perhaps spend some time in prayer, rest, perhaps some time of instruction as they would travel back and forth. How do we know that they would stop there? Because John chapter 18 tells us that this is a place that Judas knew of because they were often there with, their, with his disciples, Jesus was. And so this is also the reason why Jesus stopped at this place now, because Judas would know where it was. And so if you remember his time going to the upper room, he kept it a secret. He kept every aspect of it a secret so that Judas wouldn't know where it was beforehand and be able to tell the religious leaders the disciples wouldn't know where it was until they arrived. And that was to prevent Jesus being arrested during that time because he needed to spend that time with the disciples. But now at this moment, Jesus is going to a familiar place, a place that Judas would know because it was time for his, his betrayal. And before the betrayal takes place, Jesus here is in the garden and it's a time in which he will spend intimately with the Father in prayer. He gets there, and what does he do? Well, we read this in the parallel accounts, Matthew and Mark's account, and, and of course, Luke's account. He leaves the 11. Then he goes in a little further. Then he leaves the three about a stone's throw away in distance behind him. And what he does is he instructs the three, Peter, James, and who? John, to pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. And this must be the disciples' response to temptation. He's telling the three before he goes in even further to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. This must be their response to temptation. And so he says his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And Jesus has told them to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Now, if you remember, Jesus has already told the disciples this in the Lord's Prayer. He said to pray, deliver us from the evil one. The right translation is in the Greek is the evil one. It's not some general evil. It's the evil of Satan and his temptation. And so Jesus is telling them something he's already told them before. You need to pray to avoid falling into temptation, the temptation of Satan to sin. That's the response. That's pretty simple. And straightforward. You say there's got to be more to it. Well, we can't even get that right. We need to draw on God's help. 
and be desperate in prayer that we wouldn't fall into temptation. And so as he goes a little further in, Matthew and Mark give us the full picture of this. Luke condenses here. It says that he fell on his face. Luke says here, he went in and he knelt down and prayed, verse 41. Matthew and Mark tell us that he fell on the ground, that he fell on his face. That's the picture. He fell on his face. And so as Christ enters the garden, you get this picture of the desperation that he's feeling. As he enters in the garden, he drops off the 11. He goes a little further. He drops off the three. He goes a little further, and he can't get to the ground fast enough. He's desperate, and his response to his desperation is prayer. He can't get to the Father fast enough. He lays before the Father. The question should be asked, where do you turn in your desperation? When you're so overwhelmed by sin, this world, sorrow, where do you turn? Are you like Christ where you can't get to the Father in prayer fast enough? But let me tell you here, this is not just exhausted desperation. This is also intentional dependence. Secondly, we see that Christ is intentionally dependent upon the Father. Verses 42 through 43. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus is depending upon the Father. He's submitting to the Father. He's acknowledging divine sovereignty here. He's acknowledging divine sovereignty. He's not just desperate, he's submissive. He's not just desperate, he's dependent. He's not just desperate, he's acknowledging divine sovereignty and recognizing God's power, his omnipotence, his knowledge, his will. He's submitting here. He's not coming to God with his own agenda. He's submissive and dependent. Oftentimes, we act like we know better than God in our prayers or that our desires are more important than the will of God. You say, how does prayer work? If God's sovereign, he knows all things. Well, God has ordained that your prayers be part of his plan. But you're not surprising him with your prayers, nor are you advising him with your prayers. There is a mixture of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But he has ordained that the prayers of his saints accomplish his plan. Jesus here is acknowledging divine sovereignty in his prayerfulness. He's dependent upon the Father. He's submissive to the Father. Luke says that he begins here in verse 42 like he's really instructed everywhere else to pray. 
He starts by saying what? Father. That's the mood. That's the mood here. The mood is submissive, dependence. Father, the one who cares for me. Actually, Mark's account says that he exclaims here, Abba, Father. An affectionate term that the Jews would never use to refer to God. They would use God, they would use Lord, but never Father. Jesus, obviously, in his unique position with God, but also secures our ability to call God Father in the new covenant. And so he cries out, and this is an affectionate term. Jesus is using this personal, affectionate, intimate, desperate plea, daddy, to appeal to the father's love to rescue him. To appeal to the father's love to rescue him. He appeals to the father. And he says, if you are willing, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, he wants the Father's will. And this is the mark of true prayer. This is the mark of true prayer. He ultimately wants the Father's will. He desires God's will to be, to be done. He says, if you are willing, remove this, this cup from me. And even later on, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's interesting there because the inclusion of the pronoun in the Greek there, it, it, it really stresses the my, not my will, but yours be done. So he's crying out to the father. He's desperate. He's dependent. He's submissive. He's looking to the sovereignty of God's will. And he knew that his father and his divine omnipotence could save him from this divine judgment. We know that because in Matthew and Mark's account, we see him say, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. You can do anything. And if it's your will, save me from this hour. Remove this cup from me. The Greek shows this request has intense emotion, but listen now, it's his, his desire for the cup to pass is less significant than his desire to do his father's will. So he's desperate that he wouldn't succumb to temptation, and he's submissive and acknowledging God's divine Sovereignty, and he's dependent upon his father. He's desperate. He's desperate. And he's saying, Father, I need you. You can do all things. But you know what's best, and you have a plan, and I'm submissive to your plan. I'm submissive to you. And so he expresses his request and he wishes things would be different, but he ultimate, his ultimate desire is to do God's will. And so the word cup here is significant because it's frequently used in association with the judgment of God in the Old Testament. Psalm 11 
It refers to the judgment of the wicked. The cup does. Let me just show you this. Turn to Psalm 11 real quick. I'll just show you one of the examples. Psalm 11. Verses five through six, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. By the way, we don't have time to talk about it now, but be careful with that phrase, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. Because he says here something different. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And so we see here that this cup is in reference to the judgment of the wicked. You can turn back to Luke. Isaiah 51, the cup is of his wrath. In Jeremiah 25, the cup is of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 49, it's God's, the cup is God's punishment on those who deserve it. And so the Old Testament just continues with this idea, the cup referring to the judgment of God referring to the judgment of God upon the wicked. And it's clear here that Jesus would be under the judgment of God because of the sins of the wicked. And this is what Jesus is tempted to avoid. He's saying, if there's any way that I can avoid separation from you, your wrath, judgment, let it be. The temptation was to avoid the cross. This is unparalleled temptation. He wants to cling to the Father. The sorrow is unimaginable. And Matthew says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. He is totally submissive and dependent upon the Father. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. And this is what Jesus would become. This was the Father's will. This was the Father's will. And so verse 43, we see even more dependence. There appeared to him there an angel from heaven strengthening him. That's unique. The Lord even now is providing ministry to Christ. We only see this one other time and that's in the other temptation in Matthew chapter four. But this is the Father's ministry to him. This is Christ in his humanity, humble and dependent upon the Father's strengthening. This is unique. And the Father is willing to strengthen Christ in this time of dependence and submission. And so for us, we need to follow this. We need to follow this example that we would be people who are desperate, so desperate, that our response is to fall on our knees in prayer and that we would submit to and depend on the Father in prayer. But there's a third thing here, and it's distress. Verses 44 through 45. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Listen now, this is Jesus's intense struggle in prayer. Listen, this is now Jesus's intense struggle in prayer. We're watching Jesus struggle in prayer through prayer. This agonia refers to an intense struggle. It refers to a stretching. It refers to an earnestness. He's desperate. He's dependent and submissive. And he's holding on tight in his distress as he's praying. He's struggling and stretching in prayer. At this point in the, in the narrative... In verse, before verse 44, the other writers in the parallel accounts says that he goes back to the disciples twice before he comes back and prays even more earnestly. Matthew says that he finds them sleeping. He rebukes Peter at this point with the same words as earlier, which is pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation So in the midst of being stretched, in the midst of being in agony, in the midst of this wrestle, in this struggle in prayer, Christ goes to the disciples and finds them sleeping, which in his humanity only increases his distress and loneliness. And he it's, we're told that he then returns to prayer and he says the exact same words. There's a repetition here. It, liter- it, it tells us he says the same words intentionally. What's the words? If Father, if you will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And so he goes to the disciples. They're sleeping. Matthew and Mark tell us their eyes were heavy and they didn't know how to answer them, answer him, but we, we have... Even more information than that here in Luke. Their eyes were heavy. They didn't know how to answer him. But when he comes from visiting the disciples, it says he comes back and he prays even more earnestly. And this is where we see his real struggle. He is feeling this struggle deep in his soul. The sorrow, the temptation, it drove him to pray even more earnestly. And we see this because it tells us that he, verse 44, was in agony and prayed even more earnestly. Luke, we're told in Colossians 4, was a physician, right? He was a doctor, Dr. Luke. And he's the only gospel writer that gives us a medical condition occurring in Jesus at this moment. The moment was so intense. He was in so much agony. He was praying so earnestly that it caused a condition known as hematidrosis, which causes the blood to ooze from the skin. From extreme mental, emotional strain, the capillaries begin to dilate and burst and releasing a combination of blood mingled with sweat. 
Jesus was telling the truth earlier when he said he was so distressed that he was at the point of death. And this is what is happening to Jesus at this time. Verse 45 tells us when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. This is now the third time that he comes to the disciples. So listen now, Jesus is in distress. Jesus is in agony. Jesus is in the midst of a temptation. He's being stretched. And it let, listen now, the, the agony, you have to understand this. The agony, the distress of the temptation led Jesus, the son of God, to depend on the father, to hold on tight, to pray even more earnestly. And it caused, on the other hand, the disciples to be tired and to sleep because of sorrow. The response of their grief and their stretching was fatalism. I'm just... We're just going to give up. Can't do it. Despair overcame them. And they're being tested by Satan would result in collapse, anesthetizing themselves, falling asleep because of their sorrow. That was their response. I just got to sleep. I'm so sorrowful. I just want to sleep, so sorrowful. And Jesus' response was to wrestle in prayer to the point that his blood began to mingle with his sweat. And this is oftentimes the reality for us. We're so desperate. Our response should be to fall on our face before God, to be dependent and submissive, to receive his ministry to us in prayer. But as we feel that distress in the pit of our stomach, as we're wrestling in prayer, that we would not go to sleep, that we would hold on tight, that we would wrestle in prayer. That we would keep holding on to the Father. And so we see as Christ does all of these things, number four, he rises in defeat. And I mean, he defeats the temptation. We see in verse 46, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He comes back a third time. He gives the instructions to do exactly what he himself has just done in the face of temptation and grief. He tells them to do what he's already told them to do. And when moments of temptation and sorrow come, they're not going to make it unless they do what he just said. that they depend on God, that they're diligent to pray, that they're not slothful or proud, that they depend on him in faithfulness. And Matthew and Mark's account says at this point, he says, it's enough. He walks over to them a third time as he rises from prayer and he says, it's enough. 
He says, the hour has come. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's get going. The betrayer is at hand. And so listen now. Listen very closely. In a very real way, Christ is victorious over this temptation through prayer. Why do we say he's victorious? Well, he's not coming out of this time of prayer disobedient to the Father's will. He's not coming out of this prayer uh, submitting to or succumbing to the temptation to turn away from the cross. He's not coming out of this prayer paralyzed with sorrow. He's not coming out of this prayer disobedient. But he's literally coming out of this prayer resolute to fulfill the Father's plan, to do what the Father's will is. He didn't succumb to the temptation because of his time in prayer here. He overcame the temptation through prayer. So he comes out and there's a release. There's a resolute attitude. He's ready. Come on, time's over. Betrayer's coming. We got to go to the cross. We're not turning back. We're never going to second get this again. I'm not going to open my mouth at the sound of the accusers, but I'm going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. I'm going to obey the Father all the way to death. From this point forward, Jesus is stone-faced to the cross. And so you can imagine this, this weak, dusty-faced, dirty, just got done expressing his plea, bloody, just finished submitting to the Father's will, instructing his disciples, feeling all alone, but strengthened, literally in anguish, being stretched beyond capacity, bloody-faced, but the final temptation is over. He's willing to separate himself from the Father to be the substitute for sinners, to experience his Father's judgment, to drink every drop of the cup, to crush the serpent's head for good. And all of this literally came through a response in prayer of desperation to his desperate state where he depended on the Father. He wrestled with God in his distress. And he experienced defeat over this temptation. The question we should ask is, are you following his example? Is this what your prayer life looks like? Is this your response? Or do you look more like the disciples who are so overwhelmed with sorrow that you'd just rather fall asleep. You don't really even know how to answer Jesus. And you just get tired. They're not gonna win against temptation with that attitude. They need to follow Christ's example. And so do you. And so do I in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come... Make us prayerful, God. 
Make us people who in trial and desperation, temptation and sorrow, that we would fall on our face, that we would submit ourselves to you, dependent upon you, God, that we would wrestle and not give up in prayer even when it feels as if the bottom's falling out. And that we would see your defeat over our temptations time and time again. Let us follow your example, Christ. Let us be a church that prays We need you to work this in us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.